1: This is why we have to be a little cautious interpreting brain map data. It's just variability from typical. And then we have to figure out if it's actually applicable to the individual we're working with.
0: This podcast is graciously supported by my buddies at Ample, which is my new MRE or meal ready to eat. If you haven't checked out Ample yet, go to amplemeal.com. Now, Ample is not just a protein shake. It's a complete meal in a bottle. It includes all the fiber and healthy fats and protein and carbohydrates that you need in the right combinations from the right sources. I love this product. It's become my go-to for baseline nutrition, and I have one a day before my morning training sessions. Life can get a little crazy, but that's okay, and Ample makes eating healthy on the go so much easier. Just add water and three, two, one, go. Now, Ample's offering a 15% discount off your first order. So go to amplemeal.com if you want to try this out. Type in the code UNBEATABLE15. UNBEATABLE15. You can get a 400 or 600 calorie complete meal in a bottle made from superior real food ingredients and it's designed for optimal nutrition for folks like us. It's non-GMO, no artificial crud, no gluten, no soy. Now, they know how much I love this product and they want you to try it too. So go to amplemeal.com, type in the code unbeatable15 to get 15% off your first order. Hoo-yah. Give it a try. Hey, folks, Mark Devine here with you from the Unbeatable Mind podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. My guest today is Dr. Andrew Hill who I just spent the day with actually last week. I've got some really, really interesting things to talk about with Dr. Hill. Uh, and before I introduce him a little bit more fully, let me remind you of a couple things. One, thanks very much if you rated this podcast. We have over 300 five-star ratings. It does really, really help with the ability for folks who are you know, looking for something interesting along these lines to kind of find us. So if you haven't, then please go to iTunes and, and uh, support us there. So Dr. Hill, thanks for joining us. Dr. Hill is a top, uh, peak performance coach and neurotherapist. He's got a PhD in, gosh, you know, I would just be stunned to have, I'd have a blast studying this stuff. But cognitive neuroscience from UCLA. Uh, he continues to teach over UCLA uh, courses in psychology and neuroscience and gerontology. He's also founder of the Peak Brain Institute, where I was last week, and uh, has his own podcast called the Head First Podcast. So Dr. Hill also spoke at our annual Unbeatable Mind retreat last year, or I think two years ago, right? Actually? Yeah, I think about yeah, two yeah. years ago. Yeah. So awesome stuff. And we're going to have a great conversation today about the brain. And I learned some interesting things about my brain last week, didn't I, Dr. Hill?
1: We did, yeah. We we took a peek under the cover, so to speak, and uh, did what's called a QEEG, a quantitative EEG.
0: Yeah, you know what's interesting? is like I've been training, you know, thinking that I've been training. Well, I have been, you know, training my brain in an intense way, you know, from a very early age, from, you know, obviously all the athletics and then the Zen and the martial arts and then the Navy SEAL training and yoga and this and that, and I continue to do, and it's, you know, and there's a lot of contextual things that have happened. There's a lot of focusing, a lot of concentration. None of that showed up. What showed up was essentially the brainwave patterns and, um, and then some, and some, some, not dysfunction, but some uh, potential indicators of injury. I thought that was fascinating. Hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty common that people show a little bit of damage here and there. It's not that unusual. We're discovering these days that uh, even you know routine levels of impact can often produce damage. Recent studies out showing that high school kids who practice with a football team and never play a game show damage at the end of a season. A study out a couple weeks ago showed that after a soccer heading drill, you know, heading the ball 20 times in 20 minutes or something. You show big inflammatory markers, GABA and glutamate release and memories impaired by two thirds for a certain amount of time after you, wow. you, uh, impact your head that way. So it's not really a question of if you have damage, it's like, well, you know, is it getting in your way and how much of it may yeah. uh, be, uh, me there a little bit of wear and tear is going to happen. Certainly you Mark have lived a very variable life in all of your roles <laughs> and all of your physicality, right. um, and you know, cognitive, uh, load as well. And so your brain's gonna both react to that pattern itself, optimize, as well as occasionally take a hit yeah. and you know dysregulate tiny bit. So I think
0: more than occasionally I took a hit. I mean, there's no <laughs> question. All the fighting, you know, in in the martial arts, controlled fighting, you know, and mm-hmm. and blows to the head, or even even the body where your head is taking you know a hit to the mat. And then um, you know we talked about this earlier. They're starting to look at just shooting. So military warriors who do practice, you know, weaponry and then combat, and it's just the, the reverberatory effect of the, you know, the repercussion of the bullet. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, repeated hundreds of thousands of times over a 20 year career, you know, is going to build up some sort of micro damage.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Cumulative damage. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think, we mentioned there's a study out, not a study, there's a um, government program looking at, can we quantify this degree of sort of back pressure from the explosions, especially if shoulder mounted uh, weapons and they released some little lapel buttons, essentially, that measure concussive force. Mm-hmm. And after running it the, this program for a certain number of weeks, they scrapped it because the devices were not sensitive enough, and they were all picking up you know too high levels of force over time hmm. so when you get exposed to these kind of you know whoosh of air that's got you know pounds of force behind it again and again and again like, like like you described it does produce damage it's not really you know if it's it's how much in this case i i would say about half the people that come in i find something some sort of damage you know, the good news is no matter what you find in a qeeg um, and I, I should back up a touch and say that QEG doesn't necessarily find things definitively. Mm-hmm. It it, it, sh- it shines a light on what might be unusual in your brain. Some of the patterns are more reliable than others in terms of what they mean. You know, the, the markers for ADHD and things are very well validated, very mm-hmm. you know very valid, 94% specificity or something. The markers for TBI, traumatic brain injury, less so. Is that because the the
0: population hasn't been studied in that much detail, so you don't have the data?
1: A little bit, uh, you know, when we do a QEG, we use a normal population of several thousand people. When we do a concussion or TBI analysis, we we also bring in a database of people that have, you know, con- concussion or traumatic brain injuries or closed head injuries. Um, the, the The bigger problem probably is that injury – is a much more heterogeneous presentation than brains are, you know, typical brain regulation is. Mm-hmm. So there's lots more ways it can go wrong. And there aren't as many classic, you know, types of patterns. There are, there are a few things we often see now at a gross level. Like if you see excess delta in the brain, you think of a crush injury. It, it, mm. it, it smushes the tissue and the tissue is not quite sure how to regulate anymore, and so it defaults back to the slowest frequency, which is delta, almost like a pulse in the brain. Mm. And then if you have, in contrast, shear damage, if you're twisting and you know suddenly you decelerate and part of the brain rips away from surrounding tissue, then you get hot spots of very fast frequency, like beta, as the inhibitory interneurons connecting regions get get broken. And so some of those patterns show up in one way or the other, but you know, the stripes or force of damage through the through the brain or other forms of, of, of indication are, are really variable. Right. And then you have things like sleep deprivation, which also show inflations of frequencies and developmental issues. And you know, EEG is a very messy and noisy landscape and to some extent is still a phenomenon we're trying to explain. Right. So if you think you have a you know an injury and you find it in a brain map, okay, likely, you know, and if you have a lot of symptoms that could be post-concussive and you find indications of concussion on a brain map, then you start to believe it. But if you simply find data and it doesn't really apply to you, then it's interesting and it's something to think about, but not necessarily something to... Yeah, it's like
0: fishing for something that might not be there, you know. I mean, I got so many questions, but kind of on that vein... Like I said, if you know you've got, if you're showing symptoms, there's two ways to look at it. One, if you're showing symptoms like anxiety or depression, Mm -hmm. typically, you know, uh, the field of psychology is going to look for some root, you know, psychological, emotional cause. Mm -hmm. And what you're learning is that might actually be related to brain injury, which is then... Causing you know the symptom to appear, and and you just got it's not you know the people aren't looking in the right place; they're looking in a subjective place, not an objective place.
1: Absolutely, I mean, at least at least from my perspective, I'm very biased. I'm a physiologist, you know, I, I look at the physiology I, absolutely, and to some extent, this is also how I'm different as a neurofeedbacker, as a neurofeedback clinician. I, I'm not a therapist, mm-hmm. I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I'm a neuroscientist, and so for me the level at which I focus on this stuff is at the sort of, we call them endophenotypes or the, right. the presentations of sub components of patterns in the brain. Hmm. Um, and that's the level I, I think about not anxiety, but stress response or switching attention stuff at the level of the brain, not depression, but slowed processing speed or laterality differences, hmm. not memory issues, but slow processing speed, accelerated aging, focal damage. So I'm hmm. really operating looking for little pieces of the puzzle that I can say, hey, this might be relevant to your bottleneck or your goal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's really much, it's, it's sort of halfway between a personal trainer and a, um, the, the medical model. Mm-hmm. But I like to work much more as a trainer where I help you get the data, help you interpret what might be going on, understand what your goals are, and then start to work on this. And that's the other piece of the QEG. the, the delight of working with QEG is, anything you find becomes a target.
0: Mm-hmm. Right,
1: right. And it's a
0: much more integrative approach, right? And so when you think about integral, you know, kind of medicine, integral science, you know, you've got to take a look at the I, the, the, the I, the we and the it. So you're, mm-hmm. you're approaching it from the it, the therapist is approaching mm-hmm. it from the I, but the reality is they both meet in the middle somewhere and they both, you know, point to uh, different issues and can, and and you can get a much quicker radar lock if you take you know, if you had a partner, let's say who is a therapist, and someone mm-hmm, comes in and says, mm-hmm. "Hey, I'm experiencing these emotional things, and then I'm depressed, and I have anxiety," and then the therapist says, "Okay, tell me about your your history," and then yep. they go down that road, and then they say, then he says, "Go see Doctor Hill," and then you mm-hmm. come back with a qEEG brain yep. scan, which then says, "Hey, guess what? You have this going on in this region of the brain, and your painwave patterns doing this, which is indicative mm-hmm. of TBI or some trauma."
1: And now Absolutely. all of a sudden the, the scope yep.
0: of where you, t- you know, together in an integrative look is, is narrowed dramatically. Yeah. And, you
1: know, I, I, I definitely was in those environments, especially when I was working for, uh, I helped found a company called Alternatives, which does a lot of, you know, moderation oriented, uh, alcohol and other substance work mm-hmm. and, uh, working with psychotherapists in that environment is great. And they really enjoy, uh, and I, and I still work with therapists who send their clients to me for brain mapping. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I'll have a conversation, the therapist will say something like, oh, I've been working on anxiety really aggressively for the past couple of you know, months, not really getting anywhere. And I'll say, oh, look at this. The brain looks like the anxiety markers are gone, but we're seeing ADHD. Mm. This really looks like impulsivity. And the therapist goes, oh, really? OK, and then gets to shift their focus or vice versa. You know, If someone's got substance abuse problems and you think it's a substance abuse problem and you're doing all the deep psychotherapy and family work and everything else and you look and you see brain damage – That's going to be profound impulsivity or sleep regulation issues or other things like that. You have a different lens to go after the, the, even just thinking about it. Um, Mm -hmm. even if you don't do the neurofeedback, it helps you get another possible read on what might be going on. And, you know, as, as quantified humans, we certainly like data and this is essentially another form of slightly elegant data we can get. Right.
0: Now we we taught I did a podcast with Dr. Amon about six months ago, and he had you know similar work but kind of in a different vein. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was using the fMRI, and then I, I think yes. you mentioned to me that he's kind of switching to the Quig or the QEEG.
1: What what's the difference between the two? And you know, kind of. Sure. So spect spectroscopy um, it uses an fMRI magnet or MRI magnet. Usually, you take a radioactive tracer that tags to oxygen or glucose. And then you look at, I think Eamon's work is mostly on resting SPECT. Hmm. So you look at resting uh, metabolic activity throughout the brain as a function of how much radioactivity is being bound by the cells using the fuel. Hmm. This gives you a sort of a broad sense of metabolic activity. And what you get out of that are pictures of brains that have shallow spots in the picture or places where there isn't anything visualized where there's not a lot of metabolic activity from the point of view of this test. Hmm. QEEG, in contrast, is a resting baseline, eyes closed and eyes open, a set of measurements from your scalp of electricity versus metabolic activity. And the electricity patterns are then cleaned. We, we find the cleanest few minutes out of your five minutes or so. And then compare it to a database of many people. And out of that get mostly Z-score maps or standard deviation maps that are really framed about how unusual your brain is. Hmm. So we also get all the actual measurements, um, you know, the ratios and speeds and amplitudes of everything, <laughs> connectivity, et cetera. The biggest difference between SPECT and QEG is that SPECT is largely judged from a clinical perspective. And Amon's kind of the only game in town when it comes to using SPECT. And that's not really a coincidence, I don't think. I mean, it's a very subjective interpretation. And... I mean, I'm I'm fairly good at reading QEG. Uh, I hear you know Dr. Amon's very good at reading SPECT and very intuitive and very able to you know peg somebody based on one. But unfortunately, it's a little bit more of a clinical skill on his part mm-hmm. and a and a little bit less of a robust tool that has you know quote unquote face validity or. Showing things you think it shows you, right? Right, that makes sense. And, you know, and it's a it's a very different type of measurement too at the scalp. Versus when you side. say it's
0: measuring metabolic activity, are you talking about hormones or what, what is the metabolic activity of the brain?
1: Yeah. So in SPECT, it's it's either oxygen or glucose in, in most forms, or PET. It's a very similar technology, and you're measuring um, burning rate of the cells, usually neurons and glial cells. Okay. Uh, I don't know if vasculature is well visualized. I don't think it is in, I mean, certainly not, not in inspect. it's not. I don't think it is in PET, which is a slightly different phenomenon. And I forget which one uses glucose, which one uses oxygen. In mean, both cases, these to some extent were used in, as research tools and still are. And the research case for them is like fMRI, where you contrast or subtract two different conditions. You give somebody yeah. um, a behavior, like an attention task and then have them rest and you measure metabolic rates under those two Before conditions track the activity levels and show where in the brain things are hottest under the change and you say ah that's you know that's that's a, that's a metabolic that's
0: yeah and i can see why now with with amon's research why he was such a proponent of nutrition and sleep because mm-hmm. those are probably easy to measure cuz they affect metabolic activity so intensely. You know what I mean? Yeah, broadly. Absolutely. Broadly.
1: And, and I, I'm also a big proponent of sleep. I mean, I think nutrition's important, yeah. but for me, sleep is the big sign that things are off and I can't, and I don't measure nutrition, you know, necessarily.
0: Uh, how, yeah. Do you think nutrition has an effect on EEG?
1: grossly it does and and again q e g is a population driven metric so it is this 10000 foot view about how you fit against the bell curve Mm, Um, and so we tend to go okay you're a little unusual or different than average but just because you're different than average by a standard deviation or a bit more doesn't really mean a whole lot probably Mm -hmm. and so when things get out of the corners of the bell curve and you're a couple standard deviations out of range then you go OK, this is at least unusual enough to probably be something you're either using or is a bottleneck or something like that. So
0: that's
1: only big metabolic things show up in the brain maps.
0: So, such as extreme. You showed me the brain map of an extreme alcoholic. That would be the right. case with nutrition that's sort of and nutritional,
1: yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And both nutrition and sleep are off in that case because B vitamins are impaired Alcohol is, overrides the brain, mm-hmm. so sleep can't happen, et cetera, et cetera. You know, uh, there are some cha- there are some studies out there that show changes in, in EEG signatures with omega-3 fatty acid loading. Mm. Or other, you know, ketogenic diets produce brains that are a little bit different in the EEG signatures. Um, and But e- this EEG, this QEEG, is resting EEG. Mm. The biggest time we see differences in EEG under nutrition would be under load or task or evoked or induced change in the eg let me give an example uh back to keto or paleo or primal if you're doing one of those diets your brain is much less likely to make seizure activity Hmm. and so prone to kindling foci little seizure hot spots that will grow into actual seizures and you go from a you know carb load laden diet into a you know ketogenic or mostly you know Keto level diet and then on the edge of that, you'll get more stable brain activity over time, and so the resting brain activity might not show a lot much change. Mm-hmm. But you know how your brain responds to a flashing strobe light or something might suddenly show a difference. You know, ictal versus non, or a seizure versus no seizure activity. Interesting. So me, sometimes, yeah.
0: Let me <laughs> let me back up a little bit more to the thousand mile view here. You know, most of the listeners to this podcast are highly functioning individuals, you know, entrepreneurs, executive CEOs, Fortune 1000 companies, elite athletes, Navy SEALs, whatnot. Mm-hmm. And um, all of us, you know, and I'll put myself in this category, like to think that our brains are pretty damn good, you know, working pretty well. And uh, what I learned in my day with you is that that's true. You know, we can, you know, we can train around. The neuroplasticity of the brain is just astounding. We can train around you know, early childhood injuries from soccer or football, or, or all of us Navy SEALs who, you know, who put 100,000 rounds down range, you know, we can kind of mm-hmm. overcome all of that. However, we can still train to improve the foundational performance of our brains. And that could, should, probably will show up in increased effectiveness in, in other areas it of will. our lives.
1: Yeah. And, and we're really on that edge between a fix and a fitness metaphor here. Right. And, you know, there may be things to go after, but at least a third of my clients are people without any identified, you know, significant deficits who just want to squeeze more focus out, sleep deeper, be more creative, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Yeah, like, like we talked about Ben Greenfield, you know, so Ben is the epitome of someone who does, yeah. will do anything he possibly can, <laughs> right? To ensure exactly. that he can perform at his peak. Yeah. You know, there's not there's no fixing things necessarily with Ben anymore. I mean, there might be that something I'm not aware of, but I don't see it.
1: Yeah, Ben talks about that on his show. We, we we found a few things that in his brain, you know, kind of like we found in yours. Oh, you yeah, know, this is some suboptimal stuff from my perspective, you know. From so from a population perspective, the patterns we found often mean you know, some slight difficulty. And for someone like you and someone like Ben, I'm a little bit less concerned about weirdness in the QEG, unless it's things that suggest that there may be future problems lurking. Um, mm. you, you mentioned I do courses in gerontology. Uh, from a From a gerontological perspective, we don't necessarily care so much about curing brain problems. Yeah, we do for diseases of aging. But memory focus, cognition in normal people don't actually degrade all that much there is a trajectory of mm-hmm. decline over time and so the goal ends up being flattening the trajectory and so we slide into you know 70 80 90 with the same cognitive resource attention span memory access sleep abilities that we had in our 30s and 40s where they were sort of you know kind of toward their optimal level mm-hmm. So yes, if people come in, we can we can work on you know specific things: seizures, migraines, depression, ADHD, whatever we're calling it. But I am really oriented towards giving people tools for you know cognitive fitness, for mental fitness, brain fitness, not so much fixing stuff. And you know this is why I'm not too concerned. But fixing things
0: it seems to be the first thing. It's like if if someone come, comes comes into me and says, "Hey, I want to be an elite athlete, but they have dysfunctional mobility and they can't." you know, do a proper mm-hmm. air squat. Well, we got to fix that first to get the foundation strong, and then we can start to work mm-hmm. on the performance oriented aspects of it.
1: it yeah, seems absolutely. seems to me like
0: that with the brain, right?
1: Often. The only caveat is that because I don't diagnose, because I don't view the brain from a therapy or, you know, pathology point of view necessarily, I tend to start mm-hmm. at the the fitness perspective a little bit, even if you are profoundly ADHD, you have seizures, you got anxiety. There's not a lot of difference in a brain map of somebody who's barely ADHD and profoundly ADHD or a high level ceo who's able to power through hmm. tasks with incredible precision and somebody with C, with with OCD you know there, there's some overlap in these patterns and what looks a little unusual hmm. pathological in one person ends up not being in yeah. someone else so you're right. If there was a, a deficit, it's obvious. And in the case of body performance, I would say you know deficits and performance are a little more easier to spot because what's typical is is a little bit more well established. But in the brain, the variability For is sure. a little wider, and so the game ends up being a little bit more uh, the, the sort of coaching game. Well, how do you perceive your strengths and weaknesses, and where do the bottlenecks we think exist? match your perspective on a good goal or an active bottleneck. And Mm. and it's everything is is becomes a moving target when it's subjective from both sides a little bit. And this is why I'm so uh much a proponent of qeeg the quantitative part, where we keep going back to the database, we keep reimaging, remapping your brain. Um I really don't like the recipe book or magic formula technology kind of approaches to brain training. I really like to go in and here's something that might be relevant. Let's lean on it. Oh, it worked. Let's Are are
0: there other technologies or other tools that could narrow the scope? You know, for instance, you do the QEG and you see this kind of like map of potential, potential, you know, um, things that could be good or or not so good. But then you could give someone, let's say, a a speed test. You can Mm -hmm. give someone a focusing test. You give someone a memory test. Mm -hmm. And now Mm -hmm. you're starting to narrow down like, oh, what looked up like in the QEG is a potential for OCD. Is actually just intense ability to focus because this guy has done Zen meditation for twenty years.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and usually it it often works out the other way as well. I mean, I, I recently um, a friend of mine had me image his eighteen year old son or something, and oh, you know, he's not going to class, he's having trouble in school, and I looked at his brain, and I was like, wow, his brain looks great. <laughs> you know, uh, there's there's not a lot going on here, maybe some inattention, but really nothing profound. And I also um, mostly have – I have most everyone do uh, an attention test called a CPT, a continuous performance task. Mm, And most adult humans perform at ceiling on this test. Kids don't often unless you have a significant attention problem or a brain injury – and then sometimes there's a specific you know, pattern of, of deficit in your sustained mm-hmm. attention. And so the QEG looked pretty good, just a couple of slight you know, attention markers. But the attention test, the actual test of performance over 25 minutes or so, uh, showed you know, a couple of standard deviations of problems. So this is why we have to be a little cautious interpreting right. brain map data. It's just variability from typical, and then we have to figure out if it's actually applicable to the individual we're working with. And yeah, so yeah. you're right, neuropsych testing, like a CPT, speed testing, other kinds of testing, you know, force reaction times, these all give us a little sense of how the brain's working. I, I will say the most accurate perspective on how the brain's working seems to be the individual. From a 10,000 foot view, we're really bad at uh, telling if we're performing well right now. Our brains have to adapt. That's yeah, why we can't, that's why we aren't allowed to drink and drive, you know, because we can't tell. If we're incapacitated, the, the, the machinery we use to judge is also incapacitated when we are impaired. And and the whole point of view of maintaining survival level performance is grading our performance ability towards whatever our needs and perspectives are. So, you know, we don't monitor drops in performance very well. We adapt to them instead um, a little bit you know, per- perceptually.
0: Right. I want to come back to a couple topics. Uh, one is mindfulness and the other is training. And but before I want to, and I want to talk about the training you put me through, and then we're talking about doing. But before that, most people on this call have been exposed to some kind of brain training, like Lumosity, or some of the new biofeedback, like the Muse and the Halo, which I'm testing right now. And we talked about both of these. Let, let's talk through these pros cons. You know, what about the the standard, you know, Lumosity speed memory, you know, uh, those types of things? Is that type of training effective?
1: No the unequivocally no um, <laughs> interesting it's a very short answer and short it answer. is very very clear cognitive training these game type training you can get better in performance on the game's score but there is some there's a failure of transfer effect um, where see. you can use the same theoretically trained resource outside of the test context in a real or other uh, environment right. failure of transfer so for the most part, there's zero evidence. There's some fairly damning evidence. It's not good for Lamosity, the company, by the way. No, and and I mean, you know, we 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 pretty much got a clear read on that last year or two years ago, when the FDA or FTC actually slapped them with a "you can't be saying this does anything" kind of kind of cease and desist, and all their marketing changed to you know, describing the tests that they were creating, not describing what, what would happen. Right. Okay. Um uh what about cognitive them? training, very poor. Um working memory training is the only cognitive training that has any benefit or in, in the literature. And that shows benefit less than half the time in the literature. It's a very weak effect.
0: You know, on that memory training, I recently read about a guy who became like a this master genius memorizer guy. Like he could he could remember yeah. five hundred names, and you know they they did it through visualization tricks and whatnot. And even he admitted that there's very little crossover to remembering everyday things that he's not actively, you know, gaming himself to try to remember. <laughs> So it wasn't it wasn't improving his general memory.
1: Yeah, and there's a lot of uh, anecdotal work on people that have massive memories, and these tend to use mnemonic devices like memory palaces and other chains. And right, and people that use those will will readily agree that they have gotten good at remembering information in patterns, but not necessarily using it in any way. Mm-hmm. There are a few. Uh, if, you know, if you look at the anecdotal literature, uh, there, there's a few of these people who are circus performers and things who over time seem to develop superior autobiographical memory, sort of very crisp episodic memory. Mm. And it ends ends up being a curse over time, actually, because if you develop this sort of near-edetic or photographic memory where you can sort of open your brain up like a file cabinet, scan through, look at pages, look at experiences, put them back, if that occurs, and it seems to occur in incredibly rare cases, the consequence is that 20 or 30 years later, your mind is a constant uh, storm. It's being deluged by every experience and sensation and, and stimuli you have wow. triggering a series of memories which trigger more memories which trigger more memories. The, 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 the stimulus-noise ratio is very, very poor in actually information at that point. And so it can actually backfire. This is probably why we forget, why we actually don't have perfect episodic memory. Because if we did we would not be able to have, you know, enough emphasis or or bandwidth on the current moment.
0: Right. Yeah. Interesting. That dovetails with some other recent research that, you know, that the sleep cycle is actually a pruning of memories. Um, Yes. Did you read about that? It's a fascinating study.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. The synapses build up all day long. Um, Synaptic density. You know, plasticity happens nearly constantly. It's not some special feature of the brain. It's just one basic thing is changeability. Some things can upregulate or accelerate or increase plasticity, which is Mm -hmm. kind of exciting. Mm -hmm. But plasticity unchecked is not your friend. Uh, So you need ways to emphasize which aspects of plasticity actually are important, you know, which, which ones to keep, which ones to throw away. Right. And the longer you're awake, the more synapses, the more connections are being made between cells. When you sleep, the weakest connections all get washed away and reset. right? And only the strong ones get pers- uh, uh, consolidated or persisted across time. And this is a major feature of learning. This is why the longer you're awake, the less learning sort of works. And it's also why you need sleep for actual yeah. you know, deep deep learning. Over it shows time.
0: you the degradation of memory because of sleep deprivation, but also – you know, when you want to learn how to remember, so instead of practicing memory drills, remember what you want to remember before you go to bed. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? To yeah. kind of reinforce those memories to make them stronger versus weak because, you know, if, if they're weak memories or you haven't really spent some time dwelling on them, then then they're going to get pruned, pruned in the evening and you're not going to remember
1: them. Yeah, it seems to be three times for exposure within about 36 hours seems Mm -hmm. to be the the, the peak learning for new information. So you take it in once. If you then go back and make notes about it on your own right uh, right afterwards and then review those notes or write them out once more within another 24 hours, a couple of sleep cycles in there, um, that's sort of the maximal likelihood of of cementing information is – you know, passive exposure, active encoding by rewriting it right. and then reviewing it once within 24 hours. Uh, and or spe- re- speaking it as well. Sure. You know, another form of active encoding, the yeah, embodied yeah. cognition stuff, getting it out of your mouth, out of your hands. Yeah. yeah. So gosh, we could probably we could probably go for like a couple hours.
0: <laughs> I only publicly support companies and products that I personally use and have found valuable. So I wanted to tell you about Qualia. Now, I'm not a supplement geek. I don't find them useful if I'm fueling properly, but when it comes to my cognitive strength and brain health, I am excited about the emerging industry of nootropic supplements. I've been testing Qualia, designed by my friends at the NeuroHacker Collective, for several months now, and it's on the bleeding edge of nootropic research and has become the one supplement that I won't go without on a daily basis. Qualia stimulates what's called broad-spectrum cognitive enhancement, which involves optimizing multiple cognitive variables simultaneously rather than focusing on a single variable. For example, it brings me greater ability to focus and makes me feel more connected while not diminishing my overall awareness of the environment. I experience a systematic enhancement of my brain's ability to take in and process information without any stimulating effect, which would make me feel agitated like caffeine or depleted after the effect wears off. Now, for a busy entrepreneur and athlete like me, It's a no-brainer to invest in my brain health with Qualia. You can get on the Qualia bandwagon with me by visiting neurohacker.com, that's N-E-U-R-O-H-A-C-K-E-R.com, and use the code UNBEATABLEMIND15R, that's UNBEATABLEMIND15R, to get 15% off the life of your order. Trust me on this one, you won't be disappointed with Qualia. What about the halo? I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. testing the halo. Generally, this thing is supposed to, and, you know, it's got some, uh, you know, the Philadelphia Flyers, I think, or no, not mm-hmm. the Flyers. There's some some professional sports organization you're using it, a bunch of CrossFitters. It works on the movement or, a region of your brain, and it's got a, a neurostimulative effect. Mm-hmm. And the claim is that it's going to um, help accelerate my physical performance, you know, like make right. my one rep max bench press better or my max push-ups or whatever.
1: What yeah, I mean, I haven't looked at I have looked at the research on the Halo. I'm not sure what, what there is right now, but I have to say I'm fairly unimpressed with the slew of stimulation technologies, uh, most of which are forms of uh, tDCS um, or TMS. Uh, I believe the Halo is a tDCS device. Um, the the general shape of the literature, the research literature on things like stimulation technologies, be they TMS, tDCS or other you know, related uh, technologies, seems to be low efficacy. You know, mm-hmm. Something like one-third one and two-thirds of people seem to have an effect. The effect is transient. Yeah. Um, and so the way they've been used up until now, this idea that you're going to go in and change the brain with a transient entrainment or stimulation that then you remove, is unfortunately a little bit broken conceptually. Right. The halo as an adjunctive device to hack plasticity and then go and train hard as a way of making change happen faster. That's plausible to me yeah, fairly. Well, and that's
0: the way they pitch it. So you use it for yeah. 20 minutes while you're warming up and then you go mm-hmm. do your task without the device on, you know, I think my, my, um, problem with these types of things is, you know, you, and think you hit it on the head, you're going to get some short-term stimulative effect or short-term neuroplastic effect. But then you kind of get hooked on the device. So pretty soon, you know, we're all going to be wearing halos and muses and watches and, and our rock tape and, you know what I mean, and there's no end to the gadgets because you, you think that you've got to have them on all the time because if you don't use it, you lose it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's that, the, the, the problem with entrainment. The other problem is that some of these TDCS and, and TMS-type studies are showing that in terms of cognitive performance information processing, Types of tasks, you sometimes get acceleration or enhancement of one resource at the expense of another. Oh,
0: yeah. So you, you mentioned know, that with the Muse is a possible problem. I
1: think. Yeah, It might be. It might be. It depends on why you're using it. I like I like the Halo in terms of a adjunctive with with exercise. Mm-hmm. The Muse, my biggest problem is that it's a forehead device mm-hmm. uh, for the most part, and the forehead's not really where you want to train for neurofeedback, really ever. Mm-hmm. Nor is it a very effective place to measure many things because you need dry sensors that measure the skin if, if it's a consumer device that seems to be the way people are going uh because of convenience but the problem is you really want to measure the motor strip from ear to ear that's the important part of the brain for regulatory stuff not so much the frontal lobe in terms of an eeg signature the best validated you know markers and things like qeg so mm-hmm. a the forehead's harder to interpret and b the sensors you need when you're using these passive sensors you're getting a lot of noise a lot of emg muscle noise uh the problem with that is you need to filter noise out of the signal before you can measure it. And there's issues with filtering EEG or any or any signals, such that the more aggressively you filter, the more you smear the signal in time. Interesting. And so a lot of what I've looked at up until now, I haven't looked at the news deeply, but some of these uh, other devices that were out in the past few years, I'd look at the signal and look at the, the, the time delay between introducing noise and seeing a little bit of noise show up in the signal and it's hundreds of milliseconds, which means that this is no longer really useful for things like neurofeedback.
0: Hmm.
1: And even QEG, or measuring metrics, is a few metrics you can measure at individual locations. Like, Manaster had papers out many years ago that are now um, being jumped on by you know, entrepreneurs. You can diagnose, essentially, ADHD from a, signal, a single vertex electrode at the top of the head, looking at a ratio of theta to beta, Mm -hmm. eyes open, I think. It's a really reliable measure for ADHD diagnostics. And things like that can be measured, you know, somewhat. Um, There is a forehead measure being used in hospitals. It's a very specific type of measure that looks at coupling between gamma and theta. And it's used for depth of anesthesia. So it's actually a consciousness monitor. But those devices and the amplifiers attached to them are ridiculously more uh, sensitive and sophisticated the what is out in consumer headband devices these days. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's another case, unfortunately, of the devices having more sizzle than steak, I think. <laughs> and, you know, that dismays me a little bit because it means that people expect something from the devices they aren't getting. And, right. you know, there's stuff that's a little bit harder to use and a lot more sophisticated and works. Right. So it's, you know, it's the, the shortcut may actually make you think something doesn't work or isn't, isn't accessible, when all that wasn't accessible is something at, you know, the couple hundred dollar price point, but there's actually real things out there that you can get into.
0: And that that's likely the state of the technology too. You know, it seems to me like Muse and, and these things could be, and with, with a virtual reality, much more rich environment can be more effective, you know, as the technology evolves. So let me shift focus now and talk about your training. So you put me on this, uh, you hooked me up and put a, you know, little uh, attachment to my head and my ears and then you queued up a essentially a video game, yeah. And but there were no controls, you know. And so I was going to fly this this uh, stealth bomber through these rings of fire over the water and ships <laughs> and stuff, and it was actually really really fun, but in a re- in a different way. You know what I mean? Like I had to set aside this notion that I was going to be doing anything with my mind. I wasn't like thought controlling this thing, but I yeah. actually kind of was. But I was doing it with passive thought, not active thought. There was no hand controls, no, you know, nothing but me just essentially trying to experience and correct me if I'm wrong or or tell me if I'm even close, experience a a range of alpha and beta. What did that feel like in my brain? What was, what was actively or, you know, passively happening? And when I could feel that and keep that in that range, then the Mm -hmm. jet flew straight and through the rings. When I started to veer from that by active thought or my eyes switching or, or, you know, clenching my jaw, then it would veer off course or crash.
1: Yeah, very close. That's um, how you describe it. Is how most people perceive it. Yeah. The wrinkle is it's probably not voluntary. Ha. Huh. Okay. Um, and 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 it feels like it is a little bit.
0: I mean, I, I thought so because I was, you know, I would practice like my mm-hmm. Apache Fox walk technique. You know, I soften my gaze and go into my deep breathing and just like mm-hmm. really, you know, actively try to. You know, there's, there I am again. Try to slow down my brain. And you're saying that that was not.
1: Well, you you changed your brain, but you didn't control the software. And what I mean by that is the software is adaptive. So it's always measuring what you're doing and setting a threshold above or below where you are that it wants you to trend in to give you more rewards. Interesting. And if you change dramatically, it adjusts next to where you are a few seconds later. Hmm. So most of what it's measuring, most of what it's training is the EEG that just happened 100 milliseconds ago. And that's kind of on the edge of perceptual ability. So you were able to control your brain, and that was reflected in the software. I see. But you weren't really able to effortfully control the software because of the slight time lag, because of it mm. parametrizing or only giving you rewards for certain things your brain was doing. Yeah. And so I'm guessing that, you know, like many people, you would agree the experience is a bit more like letting it happen than making it happen.
0: Yeah, and I, I was still looking for the leaderboard to see if I was ahead of Ben, but I didn't see that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just get you like you elite, elite uh, fitness guys all in a room training at once. We'll get we we'll get, we'll get layered in there and Brian McKenzie you and all these guys that you know, awesome. competing for head to head, so to speak.
0: <laughs> so but, what is that happen? what's happening to my brain when I do that? Like how is that gonna benefit me?
1: Sure. So we did a simple protocol with you. We often start people off on this protocol. It's called SMR. SMR is a sort of a magical frequency in neurofeedback. Um, It stands for sensory motor rhythm, and it's a rhythm produced by the motor strip, sensory motor strip that runs from ear to ear, Mm -hmm. when the body's at rest. And this is fairly critical. There's a special state that happens when the mind is alert and poised to act, but not busy engaged, Mm -hmm. and the body is very relaxed as well. We discovered the SMR state in the late, well, we, we discovered that it was sort of special in neurofeedback, in the late 60s, mm-hmm. Barry Sturman, who was a professor at UCLA, was uh, measuring um, uh, learning. He was a, a learning-oriented scientist and did some EEG work. And cats were his uh, sort of test subject. Um, mm-hmm. He had a 30, 40 cats in the, in the vivarium where they lived. And um, he ended up exposing them to rocket fuel. NASA was trying to figure out how dangerous rocket fuel was. And astronauts were reporting hallucinations and nausea and stuff. Nice. And and in doing some testing of dose dependent curves he found that cats had a very typical response hydrazine destabilizes the brain and and some of these cats were confused P- ha- wasn't around then by the way it's true. This, this is a previous sort of era of of animal <laughs> experimentation. This would never pass uh, subject review right. now, but back then it did. Um, Dr. Sturman found that a subset of his cats refused to have seizures and needed like two and a half times the exposure to this toxic hydrazine before they experienced all the instability events in their mm-hmm. brain, stumbling, drooling, ataxia, you know, seizure, coma, et cetera. Um, and he realized these cats had been trained earlier, six months or so before, for a proof of concept to raise SMR, this frequency. And the reason that I think the reason that Dr. Sturman chose SMR was cats make really obvious SMR. Um, and I think it's a predator thing. So if you've ever seen a cat lying in a Mm windowsill watching birds, you've seen this laser like intensity in the eyes, but incredibly liquid body Mm -hmm. and predators can can spring into action from relaxation much more quickly than from tension, right? Mm -hmm. So you can act from profound relaxation. So SMR, high SMR is an inhibited body. You aren't acting on it. And also your active attention, your sense of got to grab that, got to really engage and think furiously, that's also inhibited. Turns out training up SMR in humans, uh, Dr. Sturman had a, a lab assistant, who was epileptic and fairly uncontrolled medication-wise. And she started having him train her brain to produce more SMR. Hmm. Lo and behold, she was able to get off all of her meds and have some years of seizure-free activity. Hmm. So there was a bunch of epilepsy work in the 70s that showed that, yes, you can sort of make the brain more metastable through SMR. And then we discovered that it also dramatically ramps down things like ADHD Hmm. to the point of, you know, eliminating them and even does things on tolerance to drugs and and other interesting, you know, resets in the brain. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it also seems to be involved with sleep. You know, in humans, SMR is not obvious. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in humans, we make a lot of it in, in a state that's obvious when it's called sleep spindles, these little bursts of SMR that happen as a memory consolidation aid when we're deeply asleep and not dreaming, hmm. so um, it's this really interesting frequency. Now, that's a lot of preamble. But when you sat down flying your your stealth bomber, we were measuring a couple frequencies we cared about. One's called theta, and one was SMR. Mm-hmm. Theta is about four to seven hertz, and usually high theta means you're distractible or a little bottom up in your attention. Things get you know, your attention gets pulled by the environment instead of deciding what to focus on. Mm-hmm. So moment to moment, you measured your theta and your SMR, and whenever your theta went down or stayed down and your SMR went up or stayed up, the spaceship or the, the stealth bomber flew more precisely towards the target, and you also got an audio re- reward, the, the ding, 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 mm-hmm. would sometimes happen when your brain was moving in range and would suddenly stop happening when your brain was out of range. Mm-hmm. The whole trick of this is the brain prefers input to lack of input. And so we were gently applauding certain things it was already doing. Whenever those things showed up, it went, Oh, okay, cool. I'm gonna that's interesting. And then when those things went away, the brain was like, Hey, where's my steering control? Where's my audio feedback? I, I was listening to that. That was interesting, that was me. And then it suddenly resumes, and the brain just happens to go back in that direction. So we mm-hmm. teach the brain, and I'm the brain, not the mind what it might want to do more of. And after several days of shaping, this is operant conditioning, after shaping the brain's activity a little bit further and further, you start to get performance differences. You sleep mm. differently, you focus differently, you feel differently. Based on what you feel, we try something else or we, we, we do more of the same. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of like if you went to a new personal trainer who said, hey, I have this gym full of parts. We're going to create a workout machine. We're going to figure out what a muscle is. We're going to exercise it and, and see if it feels stronger. But we're discovering together what a muscle is for you, and what what the right workout is for that muscle for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, it's so the training is very
0: customizable. I mean, it has to be customized based upon the actual feedback and the results.
1: Yeah, and and this is and this is why um, the, again the QEG is so interesting. If I get a sense of where you are at and how your brain operates, you know, this far X far away from typical. That helps you really design the protocol you need when it's more likely to get you where you want to go. That's more a baseline. Quickly. And also side, I mean, to sidestep the likely side effects. You can cause harm. You can cause side effects with neurofeedback if you keep doing things that produce weird effects and don't adjust for them. Eventually those weird effects become permanent too. That's, so,
0: that's, let's pause right there. That is really interesting. And I think that's something for people to understand or to appreciate. And I think I mentioned to you that, that one of my yoga teachers said, Hey, if you're, if you're an asshole and you meditate for 20 years, uh, then it's likely you could be a bigger asshole because (laughs) there's no like feedback from anybody on what's the effect of that meditation. Is it the right meditation for you? Is it, you know, is there something else you should be working on? And what Mm -hmm. about some underlying, uh, issues, um, you know, that maybe you're not focusing on. And so now you're magnifying those.
1: Yeah, the, the the you know the type of meditation. There's no feedback around it, so you right. could be meditating your t- yourself, meditating yourself off in the wrong direction. This is true for anxiety. Right. Anxiety right. is often not the right you know state to start meditation from. If you do the wrong form of meditation, you can absolutely right. Invoke anxiety, re-traumatize yourself, you like have PTSD, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. The same
0: is true for breath practices, which you know kind of worries me about, like the Wim Hof, you know, craze. Is like mm-hmm. uh, we know that the, that 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 breathing practice can you know can can create some warmth and do all that kind of stuff, but it can also have other psychological effects. And one size doesn't fit all. And the and the ancient yogis used to warn against that and say, "Listen, be very careful." You know what I mean? Do something really basic and simple, but be careful when you go crazy like that because you never yeah, know what, what effect it's going to have. So. You you wanna have the neuro, you want to have the baseline. That's a QEG gives you that baseline. Then you can target the initial training, but then you want to constantly be tweaking it for basically, you know, based upon the results and the experience. That's what you're saying, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and you end up getting them the best benefit when it's tightly tailored to you. And so over time you end up dialing in your own sort of desired brain states and brain changes in a very personal way. Right. And what a, what a successful change is is Really, your call, and to some extent, at your desire. You know, you you get to really decide. I want to be more creative, or deep, more deeply rested, or more laser-like focused. And it's kind of delightful that we can decide that we don't want to put up with something our brain is doing we don't like, or we want to reach for higher goals. And there's a fairly reliable way to get some movement there. So,
0: and how much time does it take? I mean, I think you mentioned three, four months, and you can see some serious results.
1: Right? Yeah, three to four months is around the minimum I tell people they're going to need to get sort of a long-term change. Yeah. Uh, for some simple stuff like sleep issues, anxiety, ADHD, you know, three four months is really reliable for most people. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to wait three or four months to feel it. A couple weeks in and you're really starting to notice something. Okay. And subjective stuff's really mounting uh, in an appreciable way. If you have brain injuries, uh, if you have developmental issues, then we're talking more like four to six months to make a big change. Mm-hmm. And what change is when there's more severe impairments might be a smaller degree of change. Like what success is if you're a you know, nonverbal autistic kid who's self-stimming and obsessive. Smaller changes, eye contact, reduction mm-hmm. of obsessions, that's the goal, maybe. Mm-hmm. But if you're a high-powered CEO, you know, sleeping six hours and getting rock-solid restorative rest from that, um, having resilience to switch gears all day long without getting burnt out—you know those are now the goals. So, um, a, a teenager with ADHD getting rid of the measurable ADHD on behavior tests. Mm-hmm. So it's very individualized, and this is why the the fitness versus fix,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, sort of breaks down very quickly for most people.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Now, in your peak brain centers, you um, you also offer mindfulness. And we even talked about maybe some unbeatable mind-type training down the road, which I think would be cool to have like this integrative approach. But mm-hmm. back to the mindfulness, what, how does that kind of work in concert with the neurostimulation, neurofeedback, I mean?
1: Yeah, I, I sort of view neurofeedback and mindfulness like a personal trainer and your, and your coach within the sport or the skill. Mm-hmm. So the neurofeedback is really the guy making you bang out reps, mm-hmm. work on that resource, push you past your limits – now, it's, it's easy to do, and it's sort of involuntary, so it's very easy coaching in a lot of ways. There's, there's very little motivation you have to uh, keep the person – you aren't holding their feet to the fire. You just you know, listen to what they're saying about how they're feeling. Huh. Where the mindfulness is helping you learn to use resources and explore internal landscapes and get voluntary control. And so uh, I've done a lot of work in clinical environments with more acute you know, problems and I've observed when people do neurofeedback and meditation of some sort, including right. mindfulness, everything works better. Right. I mean, adding neurofeedback to anything makes it work better because plasticity goes way up. But mm-hmm. meditation by itself, neurofeedback by itself, neurofeedback and meditation—there's a, a almost like a multiplier that seems to yeah. you know, kick in. And you know, there's a there's an Ashtanga yoga studio next to my Culver City office, mm-hmm. and we have people who do a morning Mysore practice and then come next door at eight a.m. And do take a shower in our shower and then sit down and and do neurofeedback, meditate in the evenings with us. And when people stack the body, the mind and the brain, I mean, I've had folks come in and get really great results for a few months with concussion work. Mm -hmm. Uh, or injuries and, and, but just not quite nail it down. Mm -hmm. And then they add an Ashtanga and suddenly everything takes off again and all the effects start to really burgeon uh, a little more powerfully. And I have to believe it's shoving all that oxygen and blood and glucose into tissues before you then exercise those tissues. Everything works better when you're working the whole system. And so, you know, I mean,
0: uh, that, that to me speaks to the kind of the, this notion of, you know, changing a state to essentially changing the state into a, a permanent stage shift. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, that and the mindfulness exactly. is more like integrate, make meaning of, and stabilize mm-hmm. the training effect so they have more long-term. And then over time, that becomes a more stage permanence as opposed yeah, to – Yeah,
1: and a- and it's really good for some people who are already have a mindfulness practice or who have that ability. You know, It's not going to work well for a nonverbal kid no. or um, somebody with, with profound injuries or somebody who is – you know, just doesn't think that mindfulness or meditations for them. They're sort of you know opposed to it. There's lots of ways to intervene in your psychological, mental, physical, physiological health. You know, human transformation work over the past you know century suggests when you stack multiple interventions, you get multipliers on effect. When you hit three plus interventions, the likelihood of discontinuous sort of change, where you're going to develop and develop new resources heal old things, um, becomes nearly perfect chance. Right. So three between three and four interventions, and that can be dietary, physical exercise, yoga, meditation, or feedback. When you stack three or four of these things together, you get change almost, you know, without any other option but yeah, change. Yeah. That's, um,
0: I mean that that's I mean you just basically validated the unbeatable mind there you training, go. which is a stacking of you know physical, mental, emotional, intuitional, spiritual training you know, done through uh, daily rituals, through your physical training, which now you make integrated and through spot drills. And, you know, and like you said, that the change is almost mandatory, right? I mean, you'd really have to not, either not do it, pretend to
1: do it or totally screw it up. <laughs> it is. Yeah, exactly. And, and the change in your feedback is, is totally involuntary. So if right. you show up and tell us what's going on, we can steer your brain and the spot right. drills become your life. Right. You know, you, you go out and sit in the boring boardroom and, and, and discover after 90 minutes you've actually not gotten distracted or, right. you know, you blow through a creative project with time to spare or you mm-hmm. sleep really deeply, and wake up refreshed. Those are the challenges in your – the, the, the spot drills are the practice. They become the practice uh, Yeah, yeah and, and this is why central biofeedback or biofeedback on the brain, neurofeedback, is a permanent often change mm-hmm. where peripheral biofeedback on the PNS is not – Mm -hmm. Uh, typically, unless you keep practicing, because it's a voluntary skill Mm -hmm. that you must learn to turn on and turn off, Mm -hmm. where central biofeedback is resources that you're already turning on and turning off. So Mm -hmm. practice just happens um, as you live your life. Right.
0: Now, let's let's kind of wrap this up by talking about how listeners can stack this skill Mm -hmm. of passive neurofeedback into their daily life. Now, it's not easy. You and I, you know, I think largely because the technology hasn't been miniaturized yet or, and made cost effective, but it's mm-hmm. coming. That's coming. So right now, you said that I could get, and I'm going to do this, so I want to, I want to stay on after we kind of close this off and talk some details. That's similar to what you did with Ben, but I can get the little suitcase bomb thing. <laughs> that has the laptop and the and the neurofeedback stuff, and then yeah. I, can, I can get trained on it, and I can use it at home. And you know, I can put mm-hmm. my son through it, which may help him with his ADD. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you know, maybe we could even um, come up with a program for our unbeatable mind inner circle peeps. Talk tell us about that. What's the state of the art for now? You know, if you wanted to add this as a practice.
1: But yeah, there's a couple home. ways we do it. Sure. Um, at home, uh, we offer a, a sort of intensive followed by a period of, of remote supervision. Uh, usually we suggest people do a three-day, uh, actually three half days intensive. We do a brain map. And we teach you uh, one of the software packages that is relatively easy to use. It can't do absolutely everything we do, but it can do most things we do with neurofeedback. Mm-hmm. And it's also 10% of the price of the, of the one that can do everything. So mm-hmm. <laughs> that's why it's our home system. Right, yeah. And we configure a home system for you with a multi-channel EEG amp. If you've got migraines, we add HEG, which is infrared blood flow training. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a few other parts we put together for you. And then over those few days, we teach you how to use it. And so you leave the office knowing how to do neurofeedback a little bit, even if you don't know what to do. And then we monitor an electronic chart and we give you new protocols to try and act like your tech support. And usually over those three months, the the goals are a little bit different in a remote training client. It's not so much fix the problem in a few months and be done. uh, It's not like cost effective in that way, you know, Mm -hmm. because you're buying your own gear. Mm-hmm. But like you, if you have multiple people to train, it's really cost-effective. If you want to train long-term or you're a peak performer with things to hack at for long-term, then, mm-hmm. then yeah. And then for the, ne- for the first three months, we supervise and give you support and help you dial in a bunch of different things that are working for you yeah. with the expectation that you're going to run with it long-term – and if you wanted a brain map, you'd pop into one of the offices and get assessed every so often yeah. to get a sense of what is you know a good thing to go after next. Right. And people can do that coming to we have two big offices, one's in St. Louis and one's in Culver City. Hmm. Uh, we have a few other uh satellite offices around. So so if
0: you're close so if you want to travel or you live mm-hmm. near a Peak Brain Institute, that can be kind of like a mind gym. You go in there like you're yogis next door every day or you can do yeah it, exactly like Fol- for an extended stay of a week or so right
1: yeah people come for three times a week for months people come for five weeks and do every day or twice a day training intensives yeah. or people come for three days and leave with themselves set up to train with some support for a few months at a minimum right. um and so we really try to make it accessible uh um in the, the the home there's the self-training options really get you skills because you don't just want to nail down some ADHD or some sleep stuff, you'd be better resourced working with a professional to really dial in the biggest bang for the buck every single session Mm -hmm. versus being a little imperfect and, you know, having to check back when you need new things. It doesn't really matter if the sessions aren't quite as effective because there's no limit on sessions Mm -hmm. the way we do home training. It's your gear, it's your equipment, it's your training process. And our job is to teach you to be a self trainer with whatever you're doing not charge you per session. So once you've got your setup, it's really open-ended long-term for you. But that's really about teaching you the skills, not about nailing down one specific thing. So, you know, and also if you're really ADHD, if you've got a lot of brain injuries, you might not have the organizational or, you know, step-following ability to get out of your own way long enough to train your brain to get the benefits. So I'm not sure what the equivalent is of you know buying a treadmill and hanging laundry on it for your feedback gear, <laughs> but that's not worthwhile. I mean, the the uh, the, right. the the kits we put together cost about four k, right. and that's that's a that's a large you know investment if you're not going to use it for more than a couple of months. So, right.
0: true. Do you think um, that this will work with virtual reality? You know, like the Hollow Deck or not a Holodeck, yeah. but um, Hollow Lens or Oculus Prime.
1: Um, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, and, and there's some of that going on. There are people developing neurofeedback for VR. I have a hunch it's going to be a little bit of a, a hard thing to pull off. Um, you know, you, you played one of the simple games in the office, uh, and that's sort of the state of the art in terms of animation, this is in of flying game. Mm-hmm. I've had, a couple of years ago, I had a father of a client, this a little 8- or 10-year-old kid with ADHD was training, and his dad wanted to try it. Now, the dad was a test pilot for either the Air Force or the Navy, you know, a guy who was in experimental aircraft, pulling high G's, you know, doing all kinds of funky things to his body and brain for years. Mm-hmm. Five minutes into that flying game, he needed a wastebasket. He was he was flushed, <laughs> <you serious>? sweaty, <laughs> hurling into a wastebasket in my office. Wow. Five tenths at most, um, because the disconnect between oh, he actually was steering too, because um, I, I didn't give this to you, but I could give you a joystick. And then the degree of steering is affected by the brain parameterization. The degree of acceleration is affected by the brain, but you're still steering, you know. And I think the disconnect between the signal of the command of the controller and the delay or the parameterized behavior of the of the ship on the screen mm. was very disconcerting to his brain. That's used to you know leaning on a throttle, and having a, a multi million dollar piece of machinery respond instantly Hmm. actually what's interesting is the software you use the not the game but the signal processing software called eager was built by a guy who used to build real-time operating systems for jet fighters Hmm. and that's why it works so well it's a zero lag sort of neurofeedback Hmm. system essentially or very low lag but for whatever reason you know this this test pilot couldn't handle distortions of his input system that's I think that's going to happen to more people when it's immersive to the degree that it's VR. Right. I can see that. But um, that's, that's, that's just a guess. Yeah. Fascinating. Very, very
0: interesting. Well, I think we'd better wrap this up. Folks have been listening for a while and this has been fascinating. Dr. Hill, I mean, I, I uh, applaud you for the work you're doing. I'm, I'm anxious to continue uh, my own training and to explore this a little bit further uh, peeps can find you, uh, Peak Brain
1: Institute. What, what's the uh, actual URL? And it's peakbraininstitute.com or peakbrainla. Okay. Uh, we have an, we have the, the same place. Um, can look me up on Twitter at Andrew Hill PhD. Uh, and I think I think our Peak Brain LA has an Instagram as well. If it's if you're one of the young kids these days, it does Instagram. So
0: Terrific. awesome. And what's next for you? Any big uh, initiatives on
1: the horizon? Yeah. Well, at this point, we're working to bring neurofeedback down in cost and to more people. Um, We have a lot of initiatives around that. One is we're opening multiple peak brain centers and partnering Mm -hmm. with different clinicians. Two is we're trying to expand. There's there's a neurofeedback program called the Homecoming for Veterans program, which is a network of neurofeedback practitioners who have pledged to always have a free chair, Mm -hmm. at least one client spot available for a veteran who is suffering from, initially the program was started for PTSD, although of course it works really well for blast injuries as well. And so uh, Peak Brains are part of uh, all of our centers are part of this organization of neurofeedback clinicians. You can look it up online. It's homecomingforveterans.org, I think. Perfect. And you can look up a local clinician and ask. They have a spot and get a free training. You know, the the program says we'll pledge to provide at least twenty sessions. We always do a minimum of thirty in our in our center. Um, so that's yeah. what we give to a veteran. Um, we had a couple of folks come through it and really have great results. Mm-hmm. And so our next step is we're trying to work with one of the big insurance companies that sponsors a lot of the service or pays all the services of the VA to um, sponsor much larger programs. so We can get a lot more veterans run through it quickly and demonstrate efficacy and then get neurofeedback into the VA a little more broadly because it's used here and there, but not, mm-hmm. not broadly. Right. But we're doing that on, on the on the you know veteran side, and then we're trying to work on a lot more of the ability to manage home trainers and make it keep the quality of of, of uh, protocol selection and data coming back to us really high, so we can break the clinical medical model of neurofeedback down even further and make it much more of a fitness and and, and self-accessible model. Because right now, you know the. The machine you sat in front of in my office was ten thousand dollars of software and hardware, mm-hmm. and that's just not accessible. The machine I give people for home training is about four grand in software and hardware. You know, we're starting to get there, but then you still need some time, some support to use it. So my goal is to get this stuff down. I mean, we charge, I think, twelve hundred bucks a month for memberships in the in the in the center, and we discount with multiple months. That's still, you know, a grand a month is too high for Mm -hmm. the average person unless you really have performance goals or deficits. Mm -hmm. And then it's cheap to fix your ADHD or sleep problem, your, you know, TBI, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So my goal is to continue to make the scalability of neurofeedback bigger so we can drag it down in cost and make it more like a Gold's Gym or Equinox Gym for the brain. But things like the, the, the expansion of the Homecoming for Veterans program are some of my first goals around that.
0: Terrific. Yeah, well, I love that. I love what you're doing with the vets. Thanks so much for that. Let us know how we can help. I've got uh, some ideas. One of my friends, Tom Chavy, is is building a town for veterans down in Florida, which would oh, no know, be an in residence thing, thing. And I think that a peak brain outlet there would make a lot of sense, and even on Beale Mind. So we're, we're talking to him through our Courage Foundation about helping with that. So oh, I'd love cool. to, to hook you up with Tom as well. Yes, that's good. Awesome. Well, Dr. Hill, thanks so much for your time. I super appreciate it. I know our listeners do too. This is just chock full of like really, really brain stimulating information. <laughs> and uh, it's really motivating that, that we can, um, we can, you know, use these tools of neurofeedback to actually, you know, improve to, to, you know, for mental fitness, as well as fixing anything like TBI that might not be optimal. So that's really cool. I appreciate that.
1: My pleasure, Mark. Thanks so much for having me.
0: You bet. Stay on. I want to talk to you briefly about, um, you know, next steps for me as well. And uh, mm-hmm. for everyone out there, you heard it. Dr. Hill, check out the Peak Brain Institute. I highly encourage you to investigate this. You know, in be in mind, we talk mostly about the subjective training, but stacking, you know, we, we get into objective stuff with the physical work and obviously baselining and stuff. But this is our first foray really into neurofeedback. And, and Dr. Hill is a great ally of ours. And Man, it's, it's important stuff, and I really am behind it all. So um, check it out, and let's support him. And um, if you want to um, to learn more about our Inner Circle program, we're going to probably do some tests with this next year, then check out unvealmind.com and just look you know search for the Inner Circle programs. That's our online coaching program. Not our online, but our immersive coaching program. All right, so in the, before our next podcast, you know to do the work, train hard, stay focused, stack your training, and have fun. Ooh coach the minor
1: Lock it low boys, time to explode, boys. Make sure you get home, boys. They got your back, the pride of the fleets, the bright swing frogman of the U. <laughs>